This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. Welcome to the Tuesday. No, it's not Tuesday anymore. The solo episodes are now on Thursday, and the Tuesday episodes are the co-hosted episodes where I talk to a guest. So welcome to the Thursday episode. Today, I am on the struggle bus. I am having sinus issues again. It started last night with post-nasal drip and I had a little bit of a sore throat, so I tried to drink a tea. It didn't do anything. And then I woke up at one in the morning. Just, it's weird. It's like you feel stuffed up, but you can still breathe. Like your airway still works in your sinuses. It's just you feel stuffed up in your head, kind of, like deep in your sinuses. It's hard to explain the feeling, but I know it so well now. Uh, And yeah, so... I decided I had a recording this morning and then I was supposed to record again at 1 p.m., but I decided to reschedule that one so that I could record this solo episode and then kind of take it easy this afternoon. So you're listening to this on Thursday. I am recording this on Tuesday. I don't know why I always feel the need to tell you the day that I'm recording, but I feel like it just puts things into perspective and gives you a little bit of context. So that's where I'm at right now. I don't have anything scheduled for the rest of the week, so I'm planning on working on the book that I am so determined to write. I My goal, I think, is to finish it by the end of this year. My plan for the summer is to, I already have a bunch of episodes recorded and ready to go. So I'm trying to get a few more recorded over the next few weeks. And then I'll be able to take a break over the two summer months. So let's say July and August. And I want to spend a lot of time at my parents' property. They're building a house. So hopefully it's ready. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's on this little lake and it's on kind of like a bay part of the lake so there's tons of animals there's frogs there's eagles there's beavers like it's unbelievable and milo is going to freak his freak when he sees all these animals so i want to hang out there a lot this summer I'm not sure what the Wi-Fi situation is going to be there. Apparently, they have this system uh, that they put in that has amazing Wi-Fi, but you never know. And with podcasts, like doing them virtually, it's a little bit of a headache if your Wi-Fi is not on point. So I would like to have all the episodes recorded ahead of time so that I'm just recording my solo episodes um, at their property, which does not require strong Wi-Fi signal. So that's my plan is to kind of batch record a bunch of episodes and then take a break from recording with co-hosts for a few months and focusing on the book. That was the point of that whole rant is that I want to spend a lot of time this summer writing. So I hope my mom's ready to hang out with Milo because I'm going to be busy. So much is happening this week. My sister last week had her second no her third IVF transfer so her journey is a lot a while ago she had IUI first which is just when they like medically insert the semen into your 
uterus or cervix and uh so that did not end up working i think it resulted in a chemical pregnancy and then she did an ivf transfer which resulted in an ectopic pregnancy which is super rare but um it's also scary because if it goes undetected it can rupture in your fallopian tube and be a huge ordeal so luckily she was under um supervision because she did the ivf they tend to monitor things really closely so they caught it early but that was devastating and then she did a second ivf transfer before christmas or no this was no, no no this was in january or february i believe i don't know my dates like covid has messed up all my days because i don't leave the house so it's confusing i don't remember time but she had a second ivf transfer which ended in a chemical pregnancy again which was also devastating so they just did their third last week and she is getting positive pregnancy tests right now which is very exciting but it's also hard for her to be really excited and acknowledge you know allowing herself to be excited because of what she's gone through beforehand which I don't think this is something that's talked about often kind of how these situations rob you of being able to feel excitement in the future so she gets her blood test for this transfer on Friday and then we should have the results on Saturday. So everybody cross your fingers and we are sending her baby vibes. Today's episode is about attachment and I always say or talk about on Instagram how I was trained in attachment during my PhD and people, I think a lot of people assume that I mean attachment parenting, which is a totally different thing. And so I wanted to kind of talk about attachment theory, which is what I was trained in, uh, what it is, how you can foster a secure attachment in your child, what that looks like when they have a secure attachment. I'm going to put some resources in the episode notes. Uh, And then I wanted to talk a little bit about the difference between attachment theory and attachment parenting and how attachment parenting does not lead to secure attachment. It can, but that is, it's like you can have one without the other is what I'm trying to say. Like you don't need to practice attachment parenting strategies in order to foster a secure attachment in your child. So I think I will start with just the basic history of attachment theory, where it came from, uh, how they developed it, and talk about some interesting things that you can watch on YouTube or read about if you are interested in this topic, which I find it fascinating. So if you do too, then join the club. So attachment was developed or the idea of attachment theory was developed by a psychiatrist named John Bowlby. That is how I pronounce his name. I'm not sure if it's Bowlby. I'm pretty sure it's Bowlby. It's because it's spelt like bowl, like a cereal bowl. But anyways, he worked a lot with children who had emotional issues and he started to notice that most of these, it was boys at the time that he was working with had absent caregivers or they were homeless or they were hospitalized for long periods of time. So he started to 
come up with this theory that the primary caregiver or the absence of a primary caregiver was a big deal. And I know we hear that now and we're like, well, yeah, duh. But at the time, it wasn't a known thing. So the bond or the importance of the bond between a primary caregiver and a child or a baby was not a known thing. And now we know that it's really important. One study that you probably heard about if you took an intro to psychology class is the Harry Harlow study where he took, I think it was Reese's monkeys, and he had them in a confined space and he had the baby monkey and then two fake mother-like monkeys and one of them was hard I think it was made out of metal or something like that but it had food with it and then the other one did not have any food but it was comfortable so it was you know cuddly it, it was covered in some kind of material that made it you know hug worthy if you will And I think they suspected that the monkey would go to the the one that had, or the baby monkey would go to the fake monkey that offered the food, but they didn't find that. They found that it wanted to be with the fake monkey that was providing cuddly, like a cuddly location. My... My terms, like you can tell I've been out of school for a while, like I don't even know how to talk. What I'm trying to say is the babies sought comfort and not just food, which is shocking. We think animals would automatically go just where the food is. But that study kind of highlighted how important comfort is to babies and not just food for survival. So Bowlby continued on with this research about, you know, showing the importance of a primary caregiver. Oh my God, there's a bird right at my windowsill. Milo would freak his freak. Anyways, okay. That was distracting. Um, So he continued this research and then years later, Mary Ainsworth joined him and started to look at different kinds of relationship patterns between children and their mothers in the child's second year of life. So maybe some of you have heard about the strange situation. There are lots of YouTube videos. I'll link one in the episode notes that show how the child reacts when the mom is in the room and there's lots of toys around versus when the mom leaves the room and leaves the child alone or the mom leaves the room and leaves the child with a stranger in the room. And then also really important is what the child does when the mom comes back in the room. It is when you learn about attachment and the different styles of attachment It's so fascinating to watch. And then what I noticed is after I did my training, I started to notice things, you know, we would be on a bus and I would see how kids and parents interacted. And I was like, ooh, like picking up on all these things. It's so fascinating. So if you can find a long clip on YouTube that shows all the different uh, attachment styles and what that looks like when the mom leaves and comes back, it's really interesting. So I'll go through the different attachment styles. So in the strange situation, a baby that has a secure attachment will use their parent almost as a secure base. So they know that their parent is there and then they explore from their parent. So you might see kids like go to their parent, get comforted and then go back out and explore, play with toys and then go back to the mom and so on and so forth, especially if they're in a novel environment that they're not used to. 
And then as you can expect, when the mother leaves the room, the baby will become distressed, especially if a stranger is in the room. Uh, When the mom returns, the baby is really happy and sometimes from a distance they'll reach to be picked up and to be because they want comfort from their mom. And so they quickly regulate their emotions when the mom returns and then they go back to exploring and using the parent as a secure base. It's kind of a result of moms who are responsive, warm, loving, and emotionally available. And so the babies are confident that their mom is going to return and that they, when their mom comes back in the room, they'll go get comforted, but then they're not afraid to go back out and explore. So that is a secure attachment style in the strange situation. Babies with an avoidant attachment style, which is one of the insecure styles, are indifferent to the mother. So they don't necessarily act stressed out when she leaves and they exhibit similar behaviors to a stranger as they would with their own mother. So when the mom returns after leaving the room, they might avoid her, like not even care that she came back in, or they might fail to cling to her when she picks them up. Like they're just kind of indifferent. And it's important to know, I know if you're like me, you're probably thinking, oh my God, that's what my child does when I pick them up at daycare. But I'm sure they were not that way when you first started bringing them to daycare because I know... Like Milo, it took him a while to calm down after I left and then he was super excited and clung to me when I would go to pick him up. And sometimes he would even cry when I would go to pick him up, and which kind of concerned me. And I was like, what does that mean with regard to attachment? But it's because he had been somewhat stressed all day in a brand new environment and new people around that when I showed up, I'm kind of like his comfort zone. So he was able to cry and show his emotions for being upset all day once I went to go pick him up. And so once I thought of it that way, I was like, oh, like poor little guy. But at first I was curious, like, why is this happening? But now that he's super comfortable in daycare and he has his own attachment bond with his teachers, then when I go pick him up, it's not a big deal. He's just like, oh, I'm going from this secure environment to my other secure environment. So that's why they call this the strange situation. And this is how these attachment styles work in a strange situation and not a situation that is not strange. For example, daycare, if they've been going there for a while. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Little Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals. So you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. 
The Little Spoon plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner, I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there, and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. So mothers in avoidant attachments with their babies often seem angry in general and specifically at their babies. So, you know, you always hear about people saying, oh, like babies are crying just to manipulate me and they tend to be more intolerant of babies crying and needing attention. 
This is really sad, but one study has shown that babies with an insecure attachment style are just as physiologically upset as a secure baby when their parent leaves the room. So they measured that based on like heart rate, but they don't show any outward signs of being upset. So they don't cry. They don't show any kind of distress because they've learned that that does not get the response that they want. If anything, it's almost like when they cry, when they get upset, they're almost rejected as opposed to comforted. Infants or toddlers with an anxious attachment style with their mothers uh, do not explore much or go and play and leave their mother for any reason. So instead of using their mom as a secure base to go out and explore the world, they tend to cling to her or their caregiver. They are super distressed when the mom leaves the room and then when she returns, they kind of go between being clingy and angry and they have a hard time uh, regulating and getting back to normal. So it's like they're clingy all the time, but they're also angry and not regulated. So the anxious attachment style tends to develop when the mother is inconsistent and insensitive to the baby's needs. We all hear about kids having separation anxiety, which is totally normal, but the key here is that kids with a secure attachment will get over that fairly quickly, and kids with a anxious attachment, it will kind of prolong itself and be a long, a more long-term issue. The last attachment style is called disorganized, and that tends to occur in families where there is abuse or also in situations where the caregiver that is supposed to be a source of comfort or the secure base for the child is actually the opposite and tends to frighten the child. So disorganized is a good term for it because the person that is supposed to be the secure base or the person where they're supposed to find comfort is also the person where they are afraid and the person that harms them. So it's very confusing for the child. So a couple quotes from this article and I will post the link to this article uh, in the episode notes because it is super informative and I'm just kind of going over just the surface level of everything. Alan Srauf, who is one of the teachers that I actually did my training with and he is a huge attachment researcher based out of Minnesota. He says the emotional quality of our earliest attachment experience is perhaps the single most important influence on human development. And in their study, which was this massive longitudinal study over a 35-year period, they found that the quality of the early attachment lasted well into later childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. But I should also point out that some people think that this attachment style is developed in early childhood and then it's permanent. But through therapy, through major life changes, your attachment style can change. So for example, someone who had a secure attachment and then went through a major trauma, that can affect your attachment style and how you interact with people. And then at the same time, someone who had an avoidant or an anxious attachment in early childhood can foster a secure attachment with someone else throughout their life 
time or they can go through therapy and they can go on to build a secure attachment to people in their life. All right, so I will tell you some of the characteristics that someone with a secure attachment style would have. These are listed in the article that I am posting in the episode notes if you're wanting to look into it more, but here's what some of them are. So better emotional regulation, higher self-esteem, more positive engagement in preschool, closer friendships in middle childhood, Um, more trusting, non-hostile, romantic relationships in adulthood, Um, more leadership qualities, happier and better relationships with parents and siblings. So romantic attachment is a whole other thing, but it is fascinating. And there is a really good book by Sue Johnson. She is a professor at the University of Ottawa and her book is called Love Sense. And it's all about romantic attachment in adult relationships. And I'm also going to put a link in the episode notes that is a quick online quiz that will show you your romantic attachment style. So if you're curious, you can go take that quiz. And it's important to think about attachment on a scale as opposed to you fit into this one box. So for research purposes, uh, depending on people's scores in different areas of attachment, they will be labeled as one, like they have one dominant attachment style. But for example, when you take this uh, romantic attachment quiz, it puts you kind of on a, what do you call that? Like a, it's almost like each attachment style is one quadrant of a square and then your score is going to fit, you know, you might be close to anxious attachment, but still in the secure spot. So you like have anxious attachment tendencies, but you'd still be categorized as secure. So it's kind of like, it's not, like you're put in a box and that's it. So something else that is really fascinating about attachment is that when people are adults, they are finding that it's not necessarily the actual childhood experiences that they had with their attachment figure that determines their attachment style, but it's also how they reflect on those experiences. So um, that is called reflective functioning, which I would like to do a whole episode on reflective functioning. So an example of this would be, you know, if someone had a bad childhood situation with their attachment figure, let's say their mother, and then as an adult, they were asked, why do you think your mom behaved that way when you were a child? Someone with low reflective functioning would say, I don't know, she was just a bitch and she didn't like me, you know, something like that. So with really low reflective functioning, typically you tend to not have a secure attachment style. Um, But someone with high reflective functioning that was asked the exact same question would say something like, well, I know my mom had a really difficult time with her mother growing up and I just, I don't think she knew any better. And my dad was really not supportive of her and he was always gone for work. Like, you know what I mean? Like they kind of have thought through the situation more. And they have reflected on it and have, I don't know what you would call it, but it's basically how well they understand what happened in their past and how they think about what happened to them right now as an adult. 
Anyways, my friend did her PhD mostly on reflective functioning. She did a lot of work on that. I'm trained in coding reflective functioning. Um, So I know a little bit about it, but I'm not comfortable, you know, to sit here and talk about it. Like I'm not even comfortable doing attachment for some reason, but I am. Um, So yeah, I would like to get her on the podcast so that we can dive in more to reflective functioning because it is also fascinating. Okay, so how do we foster secure attachment in our children? Zero to three months is pretty obvious. It's mostly, you know, they, they can't really identify people around them. They don't really have a preference for who's holding them at that time. But it is feeding them, comforting them when they cry, all those kinds of things. Four to eight months, they typically prefer the primary caregiver or their one of their parents. Um, They have calm periods, they explore, they babble, they begin to crawl, exploring objects with their mouth and their hands. And then, of course, we're still feeding them when they're hungry, responding to their cries, picking them up when they're upset, that kind of stuff that you like. It's almost like intuitive when a baby cries, um, you have this urge to want to help them to make it stop, like to comfort them. So that's really, this is why I had a hard time with sleep training because it just didn't feel right to let him cry until he was much older. Um, When I knew that he kind of understood that it was bedtime as opposed to when he was an infant. Um, So yeah, anyways, that's just my, obviously I'm totally biased because I'm trained in this. But anyways, at nine months is when you typically start to see separation anxiety happen and they will notice when their primary caregiver is leaving them. And then you could look at, you know, the situations that they put kids in in the strange situation to kind of see how a secure child would react versus an insecure child. An amazing resource for building a secure attachment with a child is called, it's a book called Raising a Secure Child by Kent Hoffman, Glenn Cooper, and Bert Powell. I will put the link in the episode notes as well if you're interested in learning more. All right, so I am going to now describe what my training was in attachment uh, and how we used it during my PhD. So I was trained to code the adult attachment interview, which is a structured interview. So it takes about half hour to anywhere to an hour and a half, depending on how long people's answers are. So I was trained to give that interview and then also to code the transcripts. So after each interview, we would transcribe what the person said and then we would code them or people who were trained on coding would code them. The training process was unbelievable. It was like a boot camp, basically. I went to Minnesota for two weeks, stayed in a hotel, and it was full days of training and then major homework where you would go back to your hotel room, code, and the coding was done in colors. So... I remember, I'm pretty sure like anxious attachment was orange, um, like avoidant stuff would be blue and then secure would be like green. Like, I don't know. There was all these different colors for different things when you were coding. And I remember I would go to bed at night and dream of colors. It was so like, that's how deep into the training I was. It was just like totally took over your life. 
And so after the two-week training, then you had to get certified. So you did, I think it was three rounds of a bunch of different transcripts where you would, like I was doing this at home now, I would code them, send them in, and then they would get scored and checked for reliability, like how well I was scoring. And then you would either pass or not pass. So that process took like a year and a half because each transcript would take almost a full day to code. And it was about 15 transcripts per group, I think. It was an unbelievable amount of work. So we were coding a ton of transcripts from adult attachment interviews that we did with people who were enrolled in a clinical trial for um, eating disorder treatment. And we would use that data from coding their transcripts in the research studies that we were doing. And it sounds so simple when I'm just saying it for this short little episode, but this was like years and years and years of work. Hundreds and hundreds of people, like years of training, and so many studies have come from that research lab. It's wild to think about, and it's also wild to think about all the training that I did, and now I'm not using that skill. But it's not really something like, where would I use this skill? You know, it's so specific. But at the same time, I'm so happy and thankful that I got to do that training because it made me think about my own childhood so much. And it's just information that you carry with you forever. And you start to pick up on things like in your own interpersonal relationships, like you can identify certain things in other people. It's just fascinating. So the adult attachment interview or the AAI is asking people about their childhood and like I said, it's structured. So the the person that's giving the interview just asks the question and then the um, person being interviewed will answer. And as I was saying before, some people could answer literally in almost one sentence to some of these questions and then some people would answer for 45 minutes like just keep talking and talking and talking and because it's structured we just have to let them go and that's it so it was really fascinating to see how different people answer these questions So after being certified to code the AAI, then I did training in New York City to be able to code uh, the transcripts on reflective functioning. And again, that's kind of, you know, how people make sense of their childhood or things that have happened to them. So that was also fascinating. And people can either respond to things in a very coherent way or it will be very incoherent Or like I was saying before, it can be almost like negative reflective functioning when someone responds to something like, "Um, why do you think your mom behaved that way? I don't know. She's she's a bitch. Like that's you're just totally not um, trying to understand that person's behavior and why they might have acted a certain way. Um, So, yeah, I, I love reflective functioning. And I think that's why I come up with a lot of the content that I write about and talk about is because I spend so much time reflecting on why I feel a certain way, like how someone else might have 
behaved that made me feel that way or how my actions might make someone else feel. Like I'm very aware and always thinking about these things. All right, so to end this episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about how attachment theory is not attachment parenting and they are two different things. I really wish they would have called attachment parenting something else because I think it gives people this false sense of, oh, if I do these things with my child, they're going to have a secure attachment and that's not the case. So attachment parenting was developed by William and Martha Sears and it's basically a set of practices that you use with your child like you know it's a lot of like baby wearing and co-sleeping and constant contact with your baby, uh, home birth, breastfeeding 100%. Uh, that's kind of the idea of attachment parenting and it's important to note that none of these things is related to a baby's secure attachment with their caregiver nor are they predictive of a baby's mental health and development. And it can very well be that some of these situations can actually foster an anxious attachment. It has nothing to do with being in constant contact with your baby. Secure attachment has everything to do with how you respond to your child. So fostering a secure attachment with your child has nothing to do with attachment parenting or breastfeeding or co-sleeping or baby wearing. Like it has nothing to do with that. And I think that's important to note. Also, and I've talked about this a lot, if for example, like sure, breastfeeding is great, but if breastfeeding is causing the mother to be super stressed out, anxious, not able to sleep, and so they're not as responsive during the day, that is more of a negative than it is a positive. So it's kind of like, what's what's the point of holding your baby 24-7 if you're miserable and not really engaged and you're just kind of checked out and not able to read their signals or respond to them in the best way possible? I love the message that Jennifer Anderson from Kids Eat and Color says, and she says that something is best practice until it's not best (laughs) breast, until it's not best practice anymore. Meaning that what is best practice for someone else under perfect circumstances is not going to be best practice for another person who has different circumstances. For example, mental health issues, uh, no support at home, whatever it might be. So I'll end with this little quote that says, what is important is that the baby develops a generalized trust that their caregiver will respond and meet their needs. Okay, thank you guys so much for listening. I hope this made sense. I am fighting a sinus infection and talking is a struggle. I feel like it's rattling my brain and my sinuses, but I managed to get through it. Hopefully there are some good takeaways in this episode. If you want to hear more about a specific topic, please let me know. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And we have new episodes out every Tuesday and Thursday. If you don't already, you can follow me on TikTok and Instagram at the.mom.room. And you can also follow a sweet podcast account at the mom room podcast you can check out all our promo videos and fun hot topic clips at www.themomroompodcast.com 
And we will have merch soon, guys. I'm so excited. It's going to be my summer uniform, so stay tuned for that. Tuesday's episode is with Dr. Cindy Huffington. We are talking all about screens, so definitely tune in to that. And I hope you guys have a lovely day and a lovely weekend. I know in Toronto, the weather is uh, starting to turn a corner, so I'm very excited about that. And as always, guys, I hope that your children sleep tonight. (laughs) 